I'm inviting you to put on your thinking cap today. I'm going to set up a scenario for you and I want you to decide which option you would choose. It's a moral ethical dilemma that was once used as part of a job application. Are you ready? Here we go. You're driving along in your car on a wild, wintry, stormy night. You pass a bus stop and you see three people waiting for the bus. You see an elderly woman who looks like she's about to die. You see an old friend who once saved your life. And then you see the man or the woman of your dreams. So here's your dilemma. Knowing that you can only have one passenger in your car, which one would you choose to offer a ride to? The elderly woman who looks like she's about to die, the old friend who once saved your life, or the man or woman of your dreams. You could pick up the elderly woman because, well, she's going to die, so you should save her life, right? Or you could pick up the old friend because, well, he once saved your life and you're obligated to return the favor. However, you may never again have a chance to meet your perfect match. Now, as I said, this was an actual question on a job application, and the candidate who was hired out of 200 applications had no trouble coming up with his answer. What did he say, you ask? He said, here's what I'd do. I would give the car keys to my old friend, and I would tell him to take the elderly woman to the hospital. Then I would stay behind and wait for the bus with the woman of my dreams. Sometimes you have to think outside the box if you want to succeed in life. Now, I've discovered that this principle is never more true than when it comes to the topic that we're going to focus on for the next three weeks here at Broadway. The topic of money. Now, let's face it. Money is a powerful subject. Nothing grabs people's attention, stirs people's emotions, and raises people's defenses like the topic of money. Actually, I shouldn't say that. There is one other topic that is even more radioactive than money, and that topic is religion. So can you imagine what happens when you combine the two? Can you imagine how volatile it can be when you try talking about how God wants us to handle our money? Can you imagine how defensive and aggressive people can be when you try talking to them about what God says they should do with their money? When you mix God and money into the same conversation, you get an explosive combination. Well, buckle up and brace yourselves for a wild ride, folks, because that is exactly what we're about to do. For three Sundays in a row, we're going to talk about money, God, and us. For three Sundays in a row, we're going to delve into the crucial topic of how a follower of Jesus Christ should handle their money. For three Sundays in a row, we're going to unpack what the biblical writers say should take place at the intersection of faith and finances. Now, because of the volatility of this subject, I'm going to do my best to make this as simple as possible. I'm going to try to save you a lot of time by telling you right off the top what the biblical writers taught regarding this matter. I can summarize everything the Bible teaches on this topic with one simple word, generosity. That one word, generosity, summarizes everything taught in the Bible when it comes to how a follower of Jesus should handle their money. Now, when it's put in the form of a command, it becomes two words, be generous. That's it. Summed up in one word, it's generosity. 
Stated as a two-word command, it's be generous. The writer of Proverbs, a book dedicated to wisdom, he wrote this. He said, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. King David made this observation in the 37th Psalm. He said, I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They're always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. The author of the 112th Psalm put it this way, Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Jesus himself addressed this issue. Using the word picture of seeds in a bucket, Jesus gave this financial advice in Luke's gospel. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's using a visual here of uh, a bucket being filled with seeds. Again, remember he said, with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So he's envisioned this bucket, it's again a farming community, given will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together. So he says, okay, look, it, I have so much. It's, I'm shaking it down, I'm pressing it down so I can get more seed into this jar. And that's what Jesus is saying here as well. When you give generously, you will receive generously. Jesus is essentially saying, when you are generous with others, God will be generous with you. God will pour so many seeds into your bucket that you'll have to press them down and shake them up to make room for more, to the point that your bucket can't contain them, to the point that they will overflow into your lap. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When writing to the church in the ancient city of Corinth, a leader named Paul essentially repackaged the words of Jesus when Paul wrote this. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. This same Paul was in a mentoring relationship with a young pastor named Timothy. Listen to the financial advice that Paul suggested Timothy should give to Christ followers. Paul said, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Are you seeing it, folks? Are you hearing the recurring theme? The one word that essentially summarizes everything taught in the Bible when it comes to how a follower of Jesus should handle their money is generosity. When it's put in the form of a command, it becomes two words, be generous. Now, this isn't the least bit shocking, is it? I mean, you're listening to me and you're thinking, this is kind of obvious, Darren. This feels like an intuitive truth. This feels like something that's been built into our very hearts and minds. It feels like something that has been pre-wired into us. I mean, we naturally admire generous people, don't we? When you hear that someone has significantly sacrificed of their own resources in order to give generously to some other person or some other cause, 
Does that make you think more or less of that person? I dare say that it likely makes you think more of them. I just read of Keanu Reeves, the actor who donated 70% of his recent salary from the Matrix movie to a cancer foundation. That made me admire him. We tend to admire generous people, and deep down, we all desire to be more generous ourselves. So why then do we so struggle with this? Why do we, so many of us struggle in this area? If we admire people who are generous, why do we struggle with being generous ourselves? Why do we tend to cling to what we have instead of share what we have? The more I started to think about this, the more questions began to bubble up within me. Why do we tend to struggle in the area of generosity? Is there anything a person can do to increase their level of generosity? Does God reward generosity? And if he does, how does he reward it? And if God does reward generosity, is generosity a guaranteed way of becoming rich? These are all excellent questions, and I'm here today to tell you that we're gonna answer every single one of these questions over the next three weeks. Now, please hear me on this. This is not a fundraising series. The next few weeks are not about me making appeals for donations every week. This is not a fundraising series. This is a life-changing series. This is a life-changing series about a life-changing topic. If you will apply what we're about to learn, it will literally change the quality of your life today and the quality of your life in eternity. I guarantee it. Based on the authority of the Word of God, I guarantee it. I mean, ponder this with me for a moment. How much of your life is spent thinking about, worrying about, fretting about finances? How much emotional energy do you spend on the topic of money? How much you have, how much you need, how much you want? How much anxiety in your life can directly be traced to money? Well, here's the thing. What if I could tell you that there is a way out of that anxiety, a biblical way, a God-endorsed way? Would that interest you? Well, there is a way. And this series is designed to unpack and explain that way, the way to both financial peace and eternal prosperity. You heard me correctly. Over the next few weeks, we're going to discover the biblical pathway to financial peace and to eternal prosperity. And as I hinted at the top of today's teaching, we're going to discover that that pathway is a bit counterintuitive. That pathway is a bit outside of the box. Now, we're going to begin our journey down that pathway today by laying out one of the most basic financial principles taught in the Bible. We just touched on it a moment ago, actually. It's found in the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. While you're turning to that passage in your Bible, let me set the scene that's taking place behind the words that we're about to read. The year is roughly 55 AD. The Church of Jesus Christ is in its infancy, as it has only been about 20 years since Jesus has died and risen from the dead. After a couple of years of rapid growth in the city of Jerusalem, things had become more difficult. The Jewish response to those first Christ followers had now hardened, and a serious persecution had begun. Christ followers in Jerusalem were now being disowned by their families, disinherited by their fathers, and discharged of their duties. 
To make things even worse, Jerusalem was experiencing a severe famine. Food was scarce and people were suffering. The church in the city of Jerusalem was in dire need. So one of the leaders of the movement, a man named Paul, decided to collect an offering from the other churches in order to give it to the mother church in Jerusalem, the church that started it all. It was a free will offering, meaning people were not obligated to give. It was entirely their choice. Now, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he was letting them know that he'd be traveling through their city on his way to Jerusalem, and he would be collecting whatever money they had set aside. Now, as a way of motivating the Corinthians, Paul shared an example of how churches in another region had already responded to his appeal. The example that he used was some churches in the region of Macedonia. Think modern-day Greece. Now, understand this. If the people in Jerusalem had it bad, it could be argued that the people in Macedonia had it even worse. Macedonia was in shambles. The Romans had taken over all their silver and gold mines, so they had lost much of their income. The Romans had taxed their copper and iron smelting, so they lost even more income. The Romans had canceled the Macedonians' right to cut down trees for shipbuilding and even for home building, so their poverty got worse. And to add insult to injury, the Romans had fought several wars on Macedonian soil, so their land was decimated and many of their cities were destroyed. I mean, the Macedonian churches were suffering. But listen to how they responded to Paul's financial appeal. Paul describes the response starting at verse 1 of chapter 8. He says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's that word again, generosity. Now admit it. You've probably thought something like this over the last few moments. Hey, it's easy to be generous when you're rich. You want me to be a lot more generous? Sure, just give me a lot more money and I'll gladly be a lot more generous. Well, the Macedonian Christians blew that kind of thinking out of the water. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The Macedonians were not rich people, but the Macedonians were generous people. Keep reading how Paul described their generosity. He says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. These poverty-stricken people literally begged Paul to collect an offering from them. That is biblical generosity. And that brings us to the passage we're focusing on today. After holding the Macedonians up as an example of generosity, Paul lays down a basic and foundational principle when it comes to how a Christ follower should handle their finances. He gets to it in the sixth verse of the ninth chapter. This is what he says. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, Paul introduces it with the phrase, remember this. It's Paul's way of saying, hey, folks, underline this. Do not miss this. What I'm about to tell you is crucial. 
Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is as basic and natural a principle as you're gonna find in life. It's a foundational truth. It's an obvious truth. It's a demonstrable truth. It's a truth you can witness in the natural realm. I mean, this truth is farming 101. I attended a high school that had a large population of farmers as students. Whether they arrived on the school bus or in their pickup trucks, they were easily recognizable. They simply had a way about them that set them apart from the rest of us city folk. Now, sitting in class with them, eating lunch with them, joking and interacting with them in all kinds of settings led me to gain a high level of respect, love, and appreciation for farmers. I remember sitting in the school cafeteria one day when completely out of the blue, the farmer sitting next to me said, Hey Darren, our mule died this morning. I said, okay, your mule died this morning. Why are you telling me this? Without even looking up, he said, I'm just notifying the next of kin. I love the story of the rookie preacher whose first church was out in the country. There was a blizzard one Sunday morning and only one person, a farmer, showed up for the morning service. The rookie preacher didn't know what to do until the farmer said, well, Reverend, I'm no preacher, but when only one of my cows shows up for feeding, I still feed them. The young preacher thinks to himself, all right then. So he sings all the songs, he makes all the announcements, he prays all the prayers, he collects all the offering, and he preaches all the sermon. Then, at the conclusion of the service, as he stands at the back of the sanctuary to shake hands with the one-man congregation as he exits, the farmer says to him, Well, Reverend, I'm no preacher, but when only one of my cows shows up for feeding, I don't give him the entire bale of hay. Farmers are not stupid people. They are very astute people. They have a wisdom about them that is the product of practical living. Well, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, the Apostle Paul takes a farming principle and he turns it into a life principle regarding a Christ follower and their money. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Let me show you visually what Paul is saying here. He's taking this basic principle. He's saying, listen, I've got this bucket and I'm gonna sow sparingly. I'm gonna take one seed and I'm gonna put it there in that bucket. I just sowed sparingly. And then I'm going to sow generously. I'm gonna put a whole bunch of seeds in that bucket. Which of these two buckets do you think is gonna have the higher yield? Which container do you think will produce the larger crop? It's not complicated, is it? According to the Apostle Paul, what's true of farming is also true of finances. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And this brings us to today's big idea. What you release determines what you receive. What you release determines what you receive. When you sow sparingly, meaning when you plant just a tiny bit of seed, you're going to reap sparingly, meaning you're going to have a tiny harvest. But when you sow generously, meaning when you plant a lot of seeds, you're going to reap generously, meaning you're going to have a massive harvest. Now remember, 
Paul is laying down this principle in the context of a Christ follower's financial dealings. Just so you know, I'm not pulling this out of context. Let's read it in its full context. Paul is talking about a financial offering that he's taking for the Jerusalem church. He's just discussed the financial generosity of the Macedonian churches. He then lays down this financial principle in verse 6 and expands upon it. Let's revisit verse 6 and then keep reading what Paul says immediately afterwards. Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. He's quoting the Old Testament. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The context is clear. And the content is clear. What you release determines what you receive. Now, please hear me. These are not the words of Pastor Darren. These are not the words of Joel Osteen. These are not the words of some TV preacher or traveling evangelist. These are the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. And Paul's words could not be any clearer. When it comes to a Christ follower and their finances, what you release determines what you receive. It's a farming principle, it's a life principle, it's a financial principle, it's a biblical principle. When it comes to the money that God has placed in our hands, God calls us to generosity. God calls us to be generous. And God promises to reward our generosity. So why then do we struggle in this area? Why then do we find it so difficult to be generous with our money? The Apostle Paul answers that question, and you and I are going to unpack his answer the next time we gather together. Let's pray together right now. God, I thank you for your word, for the truth in your word. And I thank you for your generosity in our lives. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You abundantly poured your love into our lives, even when we had turned our backs on you and rejected you. Your love was overflowing and overwhelming in our lives. You transform us with your love, with your grace, with your generosity towards us. We thank you for your love, for your overflowing grace and generosity and mercy. And we pray that we would be vessels of that same grace, that same generosity, that same overflowing love and mercy. And not just in the relational realm, but in the financial realm as well. May we follow the Macedonians' example of being a wellspring of generosity and joy because of what you have poured into our lives. Help us to be those kind of people, God. Now maybe you're watching and you've not yet experienced the overwhelming love and grace and generosity of God in your life. See, here's the truth. The truth is that our sin has separated us from God. 
But what God did was what we could never do. He poured love and grace and mercy and forgiveness into our lives through his son, Jesus. We had a debt that we owed to God, a debt we could never pay. So he was incredibly generous. He came and paid our moral debt. The Bible says the wages that sin pays is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he generously paid our moral debt through his death and resurrection. And it's a gift that you can receive. If you'd like to receive it, to receive God's forgiveness and mercy and grace in your life, just pray this prayer with me right now. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge my need for forgiveness. I accept your gift. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out and begin to transform my life by your grace from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me or would like more information about what it means to follow Jesus, I suggest you text the number on the screen right now. We're not tricking you. You're not joining Broadway. We're not going to put you on a mailing list. But we will interact with you and answer any questions you have and try to help you in any way that we can. God bless you. Join with us next week as we continue in this journey, as we look at the topic of generosity and what God teaches and what God calls for us in this whole area of stewardship and generosity. We're going to answer some crucial questions. If generosity is so obvious, why do I struggle with it? We're going to answer that question next week. God bless you. Thank you for being with us on Church Online today.